Hello, I'm Arvin Hickman and welcome to the first campaign podcast for 2022. I hope you've all had a wonderful festive break and got loads of goodies from Santa. In the first week of January, Campaign held an event where we got a bunch of industry leaders to gaze into their crystal balls and cast predictions for the industry for the year ahead. In this episode, we're going to listen to some of the highlights from this event. A bit later on, Campaign's UK editor, Maisie McCabe, chats with three of Adelaide's finest creatives, Leo Burnett's Chaka Sabani, Droga 5's David Kolbuz and Gray's Laura Jordan Bambach, who talk about the future of creative. This lively chat discusses whether Adlan is losing its fun factor and appetite for risk, much to its detriment, and David takes a rather pointed swipe at purpose marketing. Now, when I was listening to the event, I was nodding my head furiously, thinking, why don't more Adlanders call this stuff out? It's really a discussion worth hanging around for. But to begin with, Campaign's Deputy Editor Gemma Charles chats with TUI's Toby Horry, the co-op's Ali Jones and Barclay's Alex Naylor to give a brand perspective on the year ahead. Our panellists discuss what consumers are looking for from brands, how the pandemic has changed the way brands go to market, while one panellist explains why he wants a more boring year in 2022. Now here's Gemma to take you through the highlights of the first session. Toby, let me start with you, uh, because you very kindly contributed a piece to our year ahead issue, where you said you hoped for a more boring year, um, as you were not sure uh, we could handle another year like 2021. So that wish may or may not come true, but um, I'm sure you're pleased to see the easing of travel restrictions, um, uh, which should bring back some consumer confidence. But sort of more widely, um, how do you believe that consumer interactions with brands have sort of changed over this um, very, very long pandemic period we've been having? Uh, Yeah, clearly there's been some quite sector-specific dynamics that have been going on. Uh, I mean, obviously speaking from travel, um, it has been, uh, I'd say, fairly tough. And there's been a lot of requirement, a lot of change in the requirements for travel. And therefore, you know, customers have been looking to brands to help them and sort of navigate the confusion often so um, which has been particularly difficult because you know sometimes we haven't had any forewarning of some of these changes going on so uh, that has been really difficult to manage but I think what it's really shown you know travel and beyond is that customers still do um, rely heavily on brands and, and particularly in times of crisis they often navigate back towards big brands that they know and trust and I think that's probably the same of, uh, of other people on the call as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Alex, let me come to you. Does that sound, um, does that chime with your experiences? Obviously, Barclays is such a um, big, trusted brand. Yeah, it, yeah, it completely does. I mean, the, I, I think we can all see that the pandemic has uh, vastly accelerated trends that were happening anyway, um, but to, to such a systemic effect that it, it's having quite profound uh, impacts on how we go to market, how we grow the business. And at the same time, the, un- the unprecedented uncertainty, I think, is changing what people are looking for in brands. So w- w- from my perspective, we're seeing sort of impacts over three areas, like ha- how people are interacting with brands, um, what people are wanting to talk to them about and why, why they're engaging. But just unpack that a little bit. In, in terms of how, it's, ob- it's pretty obvious in some ways. Yeah, People are more in digital channels, virtual channels, stores have shut, our branches have been closed. But that's having quite significant impact in two ways, really. One is we're finding a lot of people, all these stats about three years digital ad- adoption uptake in one year, a lot of people 
less familiar with operating in digital channels, have a unique set of kind of problems and issues that we need to solve for. The second thing is, um, to be really honest, a lot of these digital experiences were built in a very transactional way. They were cosplays. Um, and as we've taken out human interaction and physical experience, there's a danger that you lose emotional connection or emotional engagement with, um, with customers. So huge focus this year on how do we build empathy, reassurance, warmth into that digital experience. We're finding um, the, the what is changing as well. People want a lot more help and guidance now, whereas they've been very happy to self-serve and more self-sufficient. Um, people are, are wanting to engage, to talk, to get help, maybe because of unfamiliar things like fraud has become such a big issue, or maybe because of the bipolar impacts of the pandemic. People have a lot more money. They want help and advice with how to grow it, or people have a lot less money and they need help with, with cash flow. But one way or another, those services that can provide help and guidance and, and over and above experience are becoming more and more important. We've got to weave them in. But yeah, the, the why is there as well. And with so much uncertainty and with things that are so critical to people like money, trust becomes important. Uh, and I think the other, the other thing we've seen through pandemic um, is the importance of societal consciousness and purpose. Yeah, um, you know, people taking MPs to pieces, people judging brands on how they showed up. Um, it's become very important to us that our mission, uh, making money work for you, doesn't just work for individuals but works at a societal level uh how are we showing up to help people i think that's sort of purpose has gone from being a nice to have to a, a ticket to play in the in the post in post pandemic environment that's interesting um what you've sort of ended on there alex because i think that this this is a good time to bring in ali because obviously co-op is a brand that has got that societal um strand running through its DNA um, you know Alex was talking about empathy um, emotional connection um, I think all of those are you know kind of quite core core values of of uh, co-op so so has that been something you've been able to sort of tap into after, over the last few years yeah definitely and as you quite rightly called out our our brand is 177 years old it's built on some very, very key values of cooperation, you know, supporting local communities and doing the right thing for the planet. And so, um, you know, c- customers have been looking to brands that they recognise, but brands that are much more aligned to their own personal values. And I think a lot of people have really questioned a lot of things about themselves in terms of where they live, what careers they're doing, what really matters to them most when, when things like a pandemic that threaten your way of life and your health and your mortality, it really makes you think differently. I think what's also been interesting for us as the co-op, I mean, we have a legal business, an insurance business, a funerals business, and obviously our convenience food offer. And if you look at our two larger businesses, funerals and food, um, they are known for uh, the purpose. They're known as a national business. Uh, they're trusted. But actually, quite a lot of the way our customers connect with us is on a very local level. And we've all seen customers stay much more local because of travel restrictions, working from home. But that connection with their local community um, whether that be through shopping, whether that be through um, you know spending more time with Pete, their neighbours and their families and friends, as opposed to because the travel, unfortunately, to Toby has not been there, 
actually creating that tighter network has been very important. So co-op really operates at a, a, from a brand perspective, but also that local connection. So the role of the store manager, the role of what we have our member pioneers, which are people who help communities come together and support them. We've been running at those sort of two track because actually that's how consumers are thinking about their worlds and thinking about who they want to interact with. And actually, um, you've brought in an interesting point there um, about the sort of interacting in, in the stores, the whole kind of experience, because obviously this, um, this session is also looking at customer experience. So do you think, I mean, and you're, you're customer director, so do you think this is, you know, only going to rise in importance as a, as a key area for marketers? Absolutely. I mean, fundamentally, customer experience, marketing, or whether that's brand marketing, performance marketing, those three areas have to come together because brands uh, are not just, uh, there are very few brands out there that I believe are broadcast brands. And, you know, there's a graphic equalizer needed around the role of brand complementing driving performance and then how we drive engagement through whether that be uh, experiences at place of purchase or experiences in other ways where consumers and brands can connect and have conversations so that happens you know brilliantly in the digital the social world but I think for for us in in food in particular you know shopping wasn't an enjoyable thing you needed to get in and out of that shop as quickly as possible you were wearing a mask you were making sure you were two meters away from somebody else and it, it became quite a a vanilla and transactional process what I'm really really looking forward to is is creating experiences where there's much more inspiration, opportunities to talk about the quality of our products, opportunities to surprise and delight customers with you know different products and services, and and really as as Alex talked about leveraging the absolute acceleration of omnichannel and digital experiences, we find you know whether it be in a funeral customer experience journey or a food journey that um, you know people are on the app getting information about a recipe, finding about something else, even when they're in the store. And as marketers and, and, and chief customer officers, it's our role to make sure that is absolutely seamless. Um, and there's loads of things that we can do. And what I'm excited about, which Alex sort of alluded to as well, is people are, are up for change because change has been forced on them. So in some respects, although it's been quite hard work and scary for us as, as, as customer leaders and marketers, the fact that change has been so prevalent, we've been able to bite the bullet and make some drastic changes in some of the things that we do because we're in an environment of change. So, you know, we have massively accelerated our online food proposition because, you know, consumers have been ready for it. We probably wouldn't have been able to grow at that same level if we hadn't had the pandemic. So I think, you know, what we've all done, and, you know, I know, you know Toby has, has rebranded the whole of, of, of TUI and has used this as a reset moment. So I think a lot of really clever marketers have said, OK, it's been difficult. There's a lot of change. But how do I use this as an opportunity to accelerate some of the things that I, I, yeah, we know we need to do for our business? Um, Alex, I know that you've been having discussions about whether marketing as a label needs a rebrand, whether there's a way to encompass a sort of different um, label that will encompass what, what we marketing reached out to. What marketing needs about. to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I think it's, you know, if you go back to what are we trying to do this year, we're trying to create compelling, distinctive, emotionally engaging experiences for, for customers. 
Uh, even even in the language, you can see that the, the sort of traditional delineation between marketing and CX and UX and stuff is, is disintegrating. It's, it seems to me there's sort of different systems that are coming together. So for customer experience, which has slowly brought together UX, service design, et cetera, uh, into this idea that you can um, manage the sum total feeling of um, customers in terms of their interactions across touch points. Whilst that approach has got better from a functional and utility design perspective, as soon as it gets to the appreciation and exactly to Ali, what Ali was talking to, that you're wanting to create memorable, distinctive experiences, not just utility, you find yourself walking into the need for brand, the aspects of brand, personality, tonality, values. Um, and at the same time, I think marketeers were dealing with um, the creation and delivery of brands um, in a digital world increasingly requires the delivery of experience through a, a multifarious set of different touch points. You can't just build brands through advertising anymore. And it, as a consequence, there's a, a need to bring systems like the creation of experience principles, ways of managing brand through virtual experience together. That, um, I think, has, has obviously been happening and is, you can see it in, in the job titles and the ways people are operating now. I do think, you know, whilst there's a, there's a huge amount that marketing can bring into the conversation, at the same time, I think there's a lot marketing can learn from design thinking and true customer centricity. And f- for me, a lot of this is still... There's still a lot of legacy FMCG product thinking baked into marketing, but we're living in a service age and in a relationship brand age. And in a world where you're trying to use data to understand needs and find different ways that you can help customers incrementally over a lifetime, again, you're blurring what is marketing or what is service into a an engagement proposition. How am I going to help people in instances? And it was it was this that led us to start thinking, well, maybe... Actually, the language of marketing is unhelpful. We should talk to customer engagement because it breaks, it helps break down those barriers. And, it, you know, as, as, a, as a little example um, of the sort of unlearning rethinking I think we can do, you know, you th- think about data-driven ways of helping customers and you go to, I've got a next, next best action model or some such. Um, but really all that's doing is stacking things that we'd like to sell to customers. Yeah, and we, you know, you get 0.2, 0.3, 0.4 response rate and thing, that's fantastic. We're speaking to someone, uh, you know, not, not from marketing, who was saying, well, if our, if our mission is to, is to make uh, money work for customers, do we think it's acceptable that our, our data-driven, responsive uh, support model works half a percent of the time? And obviously it isn't, yeah? And if you, if you go back and think, well, what can I actually see in the data somebody is actually trying to achieve and how can I help them do that as opposed to what am I trying to sell to them? You find yourself getting 10x, 20x kind of engagement. So anyway, a long way of saying, I do think there's a big convergence of disciplines. Uh, and whilst I think marketing and branding can bring a lot into that, at the same time, I think we need to be open to to rethink a bit how marketing operates Um and that's that's the conversation we'd had before this event about um, the idea of calling marketing customer engagement, which is probably not helpful, but slightly provocative came from came from that thought process. <laughs> Ali, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting. You know, um, nowhere in my team does anybody have the word marketing in their title. So, um, and I don't think it was quite as scientifically developed as Alex has just brilliantly articulated. But actually, it's more the essence of of thinking broader than just communications. 
It's thinking about how you create experiences because, you know, I mean, it'll be the same for both Toby and Alex's businesses is that people's perception of Barclays, TUI or co-op will be based on the total experience. I want to move on to the issue of um, kind of it's, it's a bit head and heart, I suppose, or, or maybe not. You can correct me if you don't agree with that panel um, on the issue of like brand versus performance. Um I'm just going to just quote something from uh, Toby's brilliant article. Toby, you you wrote that um, brands that grow in 2022 will be those that understand the relationship between brand strength and traffic, whether that's digital or or physical. And you also wrote about how closely you'd worked with your performance colleagues um, in in this year. So um, I wonder if you can sort of elaborate a little bit about that and just say, I mean, it feels like you're saying that the whole brand versus performance thing is kind of over because you you found a sort of well, sweet spot. I think, I mean, it should be. And it actually surprises me how many, and I do still speak to people in businesses, and it does feel like it's often a, a, a massive scrap between performance and brand, um, whereas clearly the two are meant to work actively together. I mean, to, to massively oversimplify it, basically the, the stronger our brand is, the more organic and direct traffic we get, which means that the performance colleague doesn't have to spend as much money on, on search and display and affiliates, et cetera, because that, that traffic is coming through at a lower cost. So it, the, you know, the, the theory is, is fairly straightforward. Clearly, it depends slightly on how much of your business is, is digital versus physical. But I, um, and, and Ali might be able to talk more on this, but my, my assumption is true that for um, a, a brand with a large physical um, presence as well, the, 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 the same is still true. The stronger your brand is, the more people you're going to get through your, your front door. Uh, I mean, we, and we still have stores as well. And we know that's also the case. And it does have a positive impact on conversion as well, because people then feel they can trust when they actually click the buy button that they're going to be able to get a good, um, a good experience off the back of it. So, so like I say, I mean, it does still surprise me how in many businesses it does still seem that, I mean, at worst case, often these, these two things sit in completely different departments and don't, and don't talk to each other. But I think um, more and more businesses are, you know, it's, it's the work of Binet and Field and, and, and everything people like Mark Ritson talk about, about how actually, you know, the stronger the brand is, uh, the, the more positive impact it has on your performance marketing and the less money you have to spend on it. So, um, and, I, and I'm lucky that uh, Tui were in a really good place and we really understand that dynamic. Uh, and my performance colleague is really pleased when we're spending more money on brand and the brand is stronger because it means he has to, doesn't have to spend as much money from his budget. And Alex, I think you've spoken about this before. Is there an issue between, on, in terms of the metrics, could that be a way that the, that the, um, the sort of so-called competing um, interests could be helped and come together a bit? Yeah, I, I mean, I definitely think that there's that sort of two nations divided by a common language problem with um, different sort of groups of marketeers. Ultimately, you know, to, to, to Toby's point, we're all dealing with the same customer and we're all ultimately trying to get the, the customer to behave in a, in a particular type of way. And there will be different disciplines and uh, craft skills required. Um, but wh- when that starts deviating to the point where people have different strategies, it's unhelpful. For me, for me you've got to get to shared understanding um, of insight and shared objectives. And so typically it helps to have, uh, it seems obvious, but to have customer measures, customer volumes, market shares, to look at funnels and journeys so you can understand, to Ali's point, how you're moving people through a cycle using different tactics. I think people, there is a danger that people 
uh, retrenched to discipline specific metrics, brand equity or last click driven ROIs um, to justify what they're doing. And you get to a point where it then becomes very difficult to compare different types of marketing and also increasingly divorced from actual customer behavior and actual underlying business performance. So the, the more we can do to find common language, common objectives, where you can then see, to, to Toby's brilliant example, how different aspects of the marketing mix are contributing to the same goal, uh, the more you break down those break down those barriers. Ali, you're, you're nodding there. Yeah, I mean, I think your question was performance or brand. It's and, <laughs> quite simply, which which Toby and Alex have, have, have agreed to. I think what we we've done structurally in our organisation is is you know media and and the customer <clears throat> metrics, as Alex talked about, have been brought together under one one person. So actually, you can pull the different levers of the graphic equalizer that I talked about earlier as as a, as and when you need to um and i think that is 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 absolutely fundamental and i think that you know the 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 power, the power of the brand and what the brand is saying and how it resonates with what's going on is uh it really does drive that footfall whether it be physical or, or virtual it's really really important so uh so I, I i would agree with that i think the other thing that you know we, we were chatting about earlier weren't we was um a lot of marketers moved into that performance digital space because it's so agile. And I think if I have anything to ask of the more traditional brand-based channels that may be listening to this is how can you make your media more agile? Because actually things are changing so fast to really absolutely nail down what you want to do in eight weeks' time. You know, might not always, or eight and nine weeks' time might not always be the case so I think it would help us as people who are trying to navigate that graphic equaliser and, and, and balance the budgets accordingly to have uh, more agility across the, across the different channels would really help. Excellent. Thanks so much. So thanks so much, panel. Uh, it's been a really interesting conversation. Thank you. That was a really interesting conversation. Uh, now, Campaign's UK editor, Maisie McCabe, will chat with Adland Creative Directors to discuss some of their views on the year ahead. And just a warning, there are a few choice words that may not be suitable for children. I'm delighted to be joined by three of the industry's best creative directors. We've got Chaka Sabani, the Global Chief Creative Officer of Leah Burnett, David Culvers, the Chief Creative Officer at Droga 5 London, and Laura Jordan-Bambach, the President and Chief Creative Officer at Great London. So in her piece for Campaign's Winter Magazine, Laura implored the industry to sort of step out of its comfy slippers of long-established processes and structure and strut out in glittering new heels of brilliance, um, which is a sort of really great message, I think um, we'd all agree. I suppose I thought we'd kick off with talking about creative inspiration. What is it that's kind of getting you excited at the moment, you know, from within or outside the industry? It's been a really interesting year and a half because you've not been able to, we've not been able to go out and be inspired by the things that we'd usually be inspired by. I'd usually be, you know, traveling all over the world, speaking to other creative people, seeing lots of things and just absorbing. Um, So in that kind of space where it's a little bit closer to home, I guess, kind of been relying on a lot of, I guess, a, a lot of the things maybe I used to rely on maybe when I was more at university. So music, 
film, all that kind of stuff. You know, obviously galleries are starting to open and we're starting to be able to go to museums. But yeah, it's, honestly, it's been kind of relaxing back into to music as inspiration for me. Fantastic. Have you heard of music, Colbush? Don't start. <laughs> I've only got half an hour, baby. Uh, I was going to start music talk, but I guess that's not the most important. You could do, could you do 30 seconds of music talk? Uh, <laughs> no. No. How do you continue 30 seconds? What are the things that I'm most excited about this year? Uh, I'm only going to deal in one thing at the uh, one thing at a time for medium. So if we're going music, uh, the new album by Yule, Y E U L. E. Um, it's if you like Grimes, if you like Poppy, if you like uh, who else? Who else? Um, Jenny Haval and her band Lost Girls. It's yeah. kind of glitchy, electronic, but ethereal. Uh, but it's like good melodic strain. Um, but the really interesting thing about Yule, um, it's total package. She's like, uh, sorry, not she, they, because uh, it's Nat Sinyal and she, uh, they, they don't, uh, they're non-binary. Yeah. That, that new album is going to be absolutely fantastic. But they've got this incredible sense of branding and the package is total. Okay, Jacket, what have you been inspired by? You've been watching any old films or kind of... Um, I think none of it's going to be surprising. I think Laura's point is, is the right one where I think it's gone from sort of collective inspiration where <clears throat> you could be with people and you would find natural inspiration from either people that you're meeting or events that you're at or whatever to uh, it being a little bit more um, inward. Um, and sort of not solitary, but sort of independent, which I don't mind actually. And everything's so at our fingertips. So it's, it's none of this is rocket science, but things like podcasts. I'm an absolute fucking fiend for, for podcasts anyway. And they act, I think, 50% as my therapy. So walking around, obviously, in lockdown times, and even now, I just literally always have something on and particularly love interviews with people who that's what I love about podcasts is that it's not, it's not, they're not on junkets, they're not selling you stuff. You actually get a proper intimate conversation with someone and they forget that they're actually being recorded. Yeah. Should we bring it back to advertising yeah. for a second? Um, oh. Are there any, you know, are there any, is there any work that you've been really, like either that you're really proud of or that you've seen elsewhere that you think is really great and sort of shows where the industry should be heading? I don't know whether it's about where the industry should be heading, but I, I just think anyone, I mean, look, anyone getting great workout period is tough enough. Anyone getting workout in the last couple of years, you know what I mean, is, is it's just even more spectacular. Just because it is obviously trickier. I think there's been some great stuff. I absolutely adored Tinder swipe night, not because I'm on Tinder, but I just thought it was fresh. I thought it was a nice way to look at content. Is that why you did that contest, flat? Did I contest that a little bit too <laughs> I've been rumbled uh, as an avid Tinder user. Uh, uh, my wife of 23 years will be very happy to know. No, anyway, I thought that was great. I thought Carrefour, Food Acts as a follow-on, not even just a follow-on, but just like fundamentally what they're doing with that as a business um, and what's coming out of it through to MasterCard and True Identity. I think there's been some absolute little belters, not, not little belters, proper belters in the past 12 months, 18 months. So um, I, I love, I I love the Balenciaga Simpsons collab. Oh. I thought that was brilliant. And they're doing a collection. Yes. Now they're doing an actual collection. Balenciaga. Yes. You, can, you can pre-order half of it and half of it's available now, but like proper. And the entire Simpsons clan decked out and yeah. oh, I'm obsessed. I love that. I absolutely love that. And then from a, you know, it's a little bit older than 12 months old, but, at, and you know, so I guess done by our um, teammates at AKQA, but I just love the thing that they did for, for H&M, where you can take your old clothes in now and it unweaves them and weaves them into new clothes. And it's this full cyclical, you know, clothing system, which for, for fast fashion, I think is absolutely brilliant. And the fact that that's potentially, and it looked beautiful. I mean, the design work was gorgeous, glass box, 
it was just lush. My greatest hits from last year were, um, there were like three things that kept coming. Like film-wise, that Macmillan Cancer Trust one is just like destroys me every time. I can't yeah. watch it without crying, so I don't watch it. I, and when judging award shows, like I literally have to put my screen down when it was playing and blah, blah, blah. And then uh, it's just a fabulous, exceptional bit of filmmaking. Um, and then um, two like crazy, random, weird ideas, which I love because of their, their, I love it when things are really, really stupid, but really, really smart at the same yeah. time. The, um, the uh, Ikea Pizza Hut collaboration with the, the, the table the, uh, from the center of the, it always goes in the center of the pizza. Yeah. <laughs> I, Ikea recreated that actual table and you could buy it. Um, and then the other one was the um, the one from Sweden, the McDonald's haircut. Did you see that one? <laughs> it's, it's like everyone with the 90s hair. And it was the, yeah, the yeah, Golden yeah. Arches. And there was this incredible activation off the back of it. It's like it's this labyrinthine campaign all about the, the these Golden Arches. It was absolutely exceptional. And they're just so stupid, but so delightful and deftly executed. Yeah. In terms of, um, I guess, the sort of future of creativity more broadly, is there anything that kind of concerns you that sort of keeps you up at night, kind of worries you? I mean, the, the, I mean, the one thing that just worries me, coming back to what I just said previously, is this industry should be all about fun. And sometimes you get the feeling that everyone now believes it's something really, really boring. And the pressure to be boring and the pressure to conform and the pressure to be like any other office job is so detrimental to the work. That's why I wrote that, that article, Maisie. It's, you know, we, we do have an opportunity to kick some of that shit out. And anyone that says pre-pandemic was, a, you know, was a game of laughs is lying as well because that pressure was already there before, before you know, all this shit even happened. So, you know, I think just, just that focus on what it is that we do, we you know, create brilliant things for our clients. Our business is creativity that has to be at the centre of what we do. It's not about, you know, anything else. It's not about the fiddling about with PowerPoint decks for a year to get to the right, you know, whatever. We've honestly got to take some more risks. And I know we say it all the time, but, but yeah, kind of seeing the slow death spiral in some ways of everything that we love about the industry. Um, and it really is everyone's job, not just the creative directors to make that happen. And, and uh, uh, to adding to that, for me, it's like it's uh, uh, it's creativity plus sales. We were, yeah. we're, we're actually part of our job is to sell product and services. And I think one of the, the ways we've gone astray as an industry, and this is a pet irritation of mine, is the uh, is um, uh, purpose led advertising in absentia of any real I'm not going to wang on about it, but it's quite an important topic, though, David. It is. It is an. It is an important topic, and it feels like we've gotten wrapped up in this whole idea of uh, trying to save the world. Brands trying to save the world instead of uh, selling their products, and um, and part of what we do, part of the, what this job originated as, was uh, was was we, we were selling product, but with the we were part of the entertainment industry. We were wrong on the entertainment industry ladder. Yeah, and, you know, you, you do see some great purposeful work that has creativity and sales both in there, but most of it, and I would say that like the worst bit of it doesn't have either. Yeah. If it works, then absolutely fantastic. You can save the world, sell some product, blah, blah, blah. And, 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 and entertain and, people. And entertain the product. Like, like, uh, entertain, like Viva La Volva, again, I bang on about it as well, like one of the perfect examples of that magical con- convergence of all of those elements. But when purpose-led advertising goes wrong, as it frequently does, fuck, it's rough. And, uh, and I, I feel like we're all chasing that, 
that that kind of uh, precious jewel at the moment. And it feels like we need to get back to uh, stuff that's a little more light and fun at the same time, redress the balance a little bit because uh, I remember when I was when I was a kid, I used to go and watch the, the can reel, which toured the world in movie theaters. And now you wouldn't pay to watch the I mean, it's just you wouldn't do it now. Uh, yeah. But I think it's interesting because I think you're absolutely spot on. And I think an, an extension of that is and this isn't about what worries me is it's, it's the fun part of it. Actually, in light of everything that we're talking about is who else you bring into the party. Do you know what I mean? I think I haven't got 20 years in advertising, but. One of the most um, enjoyable parts of what we do is who we get to collaborate with and who we get to pull in in the pursuit of making stuff that is accessible and enjoyable to people in whatever shape or form. And sometimes that can educate and have a more of a serious tone. And sometimes it can be absolutely for shits and giggles because that can be equally, equally as valid. But I think doing that more, remembering to David's point about what our purpose is and the fact that all arts, I think sometimes there's an embarrassment in our industry of, of the fact that it's, you know, commerce and creativity and all of art is about commerce and creativity whether you look at you know musicians need to sell fucking albums mm. artists need to sell piece of work there, there's no shame in that obviously it's a different relationship that we have in terms of advertising with audiences because we go in from the from the origin to sell so we're coming from a few steps back because people want to reject us but that just means we've got to work harder to entertain people more to be more engaging to make stuff that people actually really dig and people talk about shareable and all the rest of it it's not for it being shareable of in and of itself it's the fact that you want people to fucking like stuff or be moved by it or be outraged by it or something to have some kind of bloody emotional reaction to it and if we can concentrate on that we do the right job for our brands mm. in the right way and exactly to, to Dave's point about purpose for the sake of purpose if it's not true to your brand it ends up just being a strategy in a film or you know there's that leap you know that leap is missing that was so much better put than me shaka (laughs) (laughs) you go first Um, i mean do you think there's a an issue around these purpose ads and awards schemes you know in terms of is it quite difficult to judge say a you know a purely kind of commercial message maybe one that's even funny as well well, with something that is changing you know purporting to change the world it's just like people are constantly complaining and ever more every year about the 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 lack of humor in advertising it's not that there's a lack of humor it's just not being celebrated or awarded anymore those jury rooms and i'm not like i don't have a black heart i understand why everyone else feels a certain pull towards ads that are purportedly doing good in the world, but um, you're missing out on large swaths of incredible creativity um, because you feel like it's not measuring up to the, the work that uh, suggests that it's, it's fulfilling a higher purpose. And so it's really sad, actually. You're losing an entire skill set there. And, yeah. Becoming yeah. and I don't know whether it's like that people feel guilty or like feel, you know, because the advertising's got such a bad rap for so long that people are kind of feeling bad about what we're doing. So they want to try to make it better. Yeah. Or it's also, it can be really hard to pull apart the the message from the the, the actual piece of work. Yeah. You know, sometimes that, that becomes really tough as well. I think people are wising up to that a little bit. But I think there's a collective guilt about what we do, which doesn't help. Well, I've been long banging on probably for about a, a year or two about how, like, if we keep going like this, we're going to need to do a parallel category specifically for comedy. So we don't completely lose anything mm-hmm. with a degree of wit or humor to it from these shows. Mm-hmm. What, do, what do you think the client's role is in this? Are they? Well, in which bit? In, in, in terms of the, the 
I guess, purpose-led ads? Are they kind of asking for it? Or is it kind of driven by the creatives or a mixture of the two? It's currency within the industry right now, isn't it? So, I mean, there's always mm-hmm. going to be some people asking for it and some creatives pushing for it and some lead- creative leaders uh, suggesting that that's the only way to go because that's what hoovers up award show metal at the minute. It's just kind of, to me, it just doesn't necessarily seem like always the right answer or, or always the right thing to do. And so I kind of um, issue, uh, receive wisdom and kind of do whatever I, I personally do. Right? I think all bright, I mean, look, I think our job is to help define what the purpose is for all of our clients and for all of the brands that we work with and on. I think part of that job, though, and part of that debate is to figure out what that purpose is. And the definition of purpose doesn't have to be changing the world or saving the world. It can be providing little lifts. It can be making people smile. It can be entertaining people, you know, whatever it is, you know, dependent on category and all the rest of it. And it's equally as valid. It is because it it Uh can't just be about one. It's not just one note. And more importantly, it's not about it being one note. It has to be true to your brand. If it's not true to your brand, people sniff bullshit straight away. And you're, you're trying to, you know, and ultimately everything is about authenticity. People aren't stupid. They can, they figure it out within a heartbeat that you're trying to get in favor. So I think it, Get, thankfully, I do think it 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 gets sniffed out very very quickly. I just think, unfortunately, to, to David's point, a lot of work that uh, and a lot of brands that do amazing work consistently that lives in the world that gets talked about that people genuinely connect with. I think sometimes it's it's tougher for that those brands to be awarded in jury rooms because uh. it's not seen of it's seen in the same sort of sense of like well what is what ex, what exactly is it doing well well it's lifting people's hearts which is equally as important that's exquisitely put and that's happened again and i've just realized what it's like it's like it's like i'm like some 20 year old heart morning radio dj and i'm like blah, 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 blah. and then you're like radio four and you come on what he's trying to say what, is, what the moron is trying to say is no one's ever put me in that category i think they really shut good. the doors if you weren't anywhere near radio four we're close running up to time but we do have a question for the audience which is do i'm not sure if we can answer it in the time we have but we should we could try so it's do you think this collective guilt explains the great resignation um and so this is the guilt about you know our our commercial role so and how do you think agencies can pull purposefulness back into play if they need to i I would say it's part of it but i would i'd like from my point of view coming back to that i point about this should be fun um i think that is causing like more trouble in terms of the great resignation why work for an advertising agency if you know why work in this industry if it feels like every single other industry you know why why work in this industry if you can't be a rock star if you can't you know turn up you know late sometimes if you can't sometimes go down to the pub if you can't you know just be silly and and that's where the best ideas come from is just that that sense of play and, and we've become very very corporatized in so many ways I think that it's a not it's not as exciting uh, potentially as as an industry as what we were you don't you don't need to talk about all the good you're doing in the world all the time in fact it's often more effective not to look at Keanu Reeves <laughs> that is the most enigmatic ending yeah you're not going to build on that see you've you david you've managed to 
I could talk about one of my first crushes, which was Laurie Petty, but I mean, I don't think that that's probably... Girl! Yeah. One, one thing I would say, well, the only thing I would say is I, I think, again, one of the things that we can also do is we can put the focus very much on our industry, you know, in terms of the Great Resignation. The Great Resignation is happening worldwide because the world has woken up to the value of life and do we actually, how do we want to live our lives? Are we leading the most enriching way? So I think we're a microcosm of that. So I, again, I just don't think it's an alarmist thing. I, I think there are, to, to Laura Davis points, I think there's shitloads of stuff that we need to address. But I think there's, there is a shitload of reason to also be really optimistic because ultimately it's in our hands. Uh, that we, we get, we, uh, we're massively, massively privileged to do what we do. And we absolutely need to turn up the phone. We need to turn up the last. We need to get more perspective. But ultimately, the, the, anyway, uh, my point being is that I think, uh, I don't think that's specifically the reason for the great resignation. I think we need to make sure that when people are looking at what they want out of their life, that in terms of creative endeavor, this industry and this group of people and everyone mm-hmm. that lives and works within it feels like a really, really attractive proposition. And some of you just want to go and play. You and fucking play. did it again. Yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> to channel my inner Laurie Petty, baby. Oh, God. Um, well, I know we've all got hard stops because you're really important. Um, busy piece of people and thank you so much for that really entertaining discussion I think be more Keanu Reeves is probably a sentiment that yeah. um, you know we <laughs> can all benefit from oh yeah indeed um, you know thank you so much for your time and thanks for the, the question that's a really interesting point um, from the audience Well, there you have it. No punches pulled in our first episode of the campaign podcast for this year. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Thank you to Maisie, Gemma and all of our wonderful guests and also a big thank you to our producer, Lindsay Riley from Rethink Audio. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the campaign podcast on Spotify, Apple, Acast or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That's it for me. On behalf of the campaign team, I hope you join us next time. Listener.